0: Because you get that legend is a phrase bandied around sport far too easily. Because you get that politics is more about what's possible. Because you get that a cryptic clue can have a simple solution. Because you get the benefit of hearing other opinions. The Irish Times. Because you get it. Enjoy unlimited access to informed opinion and real news. Visit irishtimes.com and get the first month for just one euro. T's and C's apply.
2: The 4th of August 1982. The doorbell rang of a penthouse apartment in Pilots View, Dawkey, an upmarket development in an upmarket area of South Dublin, with long coastal views across Dublin Bay towards Hoth Head. The door was opened by Paddy Connolly. He also happened to be the Attorney General, the top law officer in the state. The visitor at the doorstep was Malcolm MacArthur. He had a blue hold-all bag in his hand. Paddy Connolly was relieved to see MacArthur, whose partner, Brenda Little, was one of his closest friends. She had rung him several days beforehand, worried because she had not heard from MacArthur for some time. Now, here he was on his doorstep with his wavy dark hair, cultivated accent, and diffident manner.
0: told me that he was going to be around for a few days dealing with his financial affairs. I told him he would be perfectly welcome uh, to stay with me while he was so doing. In the beginning he demurred about this uh, because he said he did not want to intrude upon my privacy and so far as I can remember he also told me that he had been staying for a couple of days already with some friend in Trinity but uh, I indicated to him that I would not regard uh, his uh, stay as intruding on my privacy.
2: Connolly did not notice the dirty shirt or the grass stains on MacArthur's trousers, or the scuffed shoes he was wearing. He was oblivious to the fact that a man he regarded as a reserved and shy academic had callously killed a young nurse and a young farmer. Nor did he realise that only hours beforehand, MacArthur had pointed a shotgun at an American diplomat, Harry Bealing, in nearby Killiney, and demanded 1,000 pounds off him. If Bealing had not escaped, there was a likelihood he would have shot him too. I'm Harry McGee of the Irish Times, and this is episode five of Gooboo, a seven part series looking at one of the most infamous murder cases in Ireland, and how it almost toppled the government of Charles J. haughey 40 years ago. It wasn't called Watergate in, in the Irish context, it was called Gooboo
0: gooboo. Famous words, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and uh, unbelievable. It was grotesque, it was unbelievable, it was bizarre, it was unprecedented. It was a gooboo situation and Hawkey was right in the middle of it. People, you know, saw all kinds of conspiracies during that 81, 82. It was crazy stuff. I mean, the place became a bit crazy for a year or two.
2: When MacArthur arrived at his front door, Connolly immediately rang Brenda Little and put MacArthur on the phone. After a few minutes, MacArthur handed the phone back to Connolly. Brenda wanted to speak to him. She asked him would he put MacArthur up for a few days, as he himself was too shy to ask. Connolly readily agreed.
3: Connolly's association was with uh, Brenda Little at the time. He was uh, a long-term friend of hers. He he just happened to be our partner at the time. As far as Connolly was concerned, this guy arrived at his doorstep on the 4th of August. He's clean-shaven. He has just arrived from the airport, as far as he understands. He's just arrived in the country. He wasn't here when the awful crimes happened.
2: Once the call ended, he asked MacArthur to stay. MacArthur demurred. Connolly insisted. There was a polite Mexican standoff until MacArthur finally agreed. Connolly had always found it hard to talk to MacArthur. In an interview he did with me in 1992, he said, Malcolm MacArthur was not the kind of person of whom you would ask what he had been up to. MacArthur had a few paltry possessions when he arrived at Connolly's penthouse apartment. Among them was the blue hold-all bag, which contained the Maruka shotgun. Connolly himself was coming to the end of a frantic few months in his new position as Attorney-General. In ten days' time, he was departing for a long-planned holiday to the United States. Stephen Connolly said his uncle had enjoyed dealing with the challenges, but it had been a difficult time for the new government.
1: That cabinet, as you know, was fraught with difficulty. There was internal fighting within Finafor. There was the constant leaking of information into the press, which was happening at an extraordinary rate. It was something that Hawi was extremely conscious of. I remember him saying that he had never seen somebody so in command of their brief like Oye was. He said he knew every ounce of detail that was on every other minister's brief. And he would rip through them if they didn't know in the same manner. And he said it was extraordinary to watch him in operation. But there were various ministers at that Cabinet table who you'd really question why were they
2: there. Malcolm MacArthur quickly made himself at home in his swish new surroundings. It's clear also that he was trying to lie low. This is Irish Times journalist Peter Murtagh.
0: MacArthur, post-Harry Bealing, had ended up in Paddy Connolly's apartment in Pilot View. And while there, had adopted this sort of lifestyle of ringing up taxi ranks around Dunleary and ordering food and ordering newspapers and what have you, and they would be delivered to Paddy Connolly's home.
2: It was from Conley's flat the following day, Thursday, that MacArthur rang Harry Bealing, the man he had tried to stick up the previous evening. Beethoven's Seventh Symphony was playing in the background. He then rang the guards and dorky to say it was a joke and blurted out his own name to them when asked. After having failed at his first two attempts at armed robbery, MacArthur did little during that week. It was clear, though, that he was beginning to plan another robbery. He had acquired a hacksaw. When Connolly was away at work, he shortened the barrels on the shotgun. He also rang taxis each day to deliver him food, bottles of Perrier water, copies of the Irish Times and, when available, the English satirical magazine Private Eye. The following Sunday, there was another truly surreal occurrence that has assumed mythical status in the intervening years. Paddy Connolly and his brother Tony were lifelong GAA supporters and went to all the major games. On the 8th of August, Galway were playing against Kilkenny in the All-Ireland Hurling semi-final, a huge occasion in the sporting calendar. Tony Connolly drove on the Sunday from Carlow with his 18-year-old son Stephen, who had just completed his Leaving Certificate exams. They all met in the Attorney-General's apartment in Pilot View. Paddy Connolly, his brother Tony, and nephew Stephen were driven to Crow Park in a state car driven by a Gorda driver. With them in the state car was Connolly's house guest, Malcolm MacArthur. The mythical anecdote claims that Malcolm MacArthur sat alongside Paddy Connolly in the Horia or VIP section, of the Hogan stand. While Connolly and the Garda commissioner, the head of the Irish police, had a conversation about that summer's dreadful murders of the nurse and the farmer, as well as the hunt for the mystery killer. Stephen Connolly throws cold water on this story. He said he and MacArthur received no VIP treatment. Patrick Connolly did not meet the Gorda Commissioner there. More prosaically, Stephen and Malcolm MacArthur split up from the other two and went to the Hogan stand, filing in through the turnstiles with thousands of other hurling fans.
1: MacArthur didn't sit in the Art section. It was my father and Paddy who sat in there. And there, they weren't anywhere near Gorda Commissioners or anything like that. That's just complete nonsense.
2: Stephen was a perceptive young man, and he noticed something off about MacArthur, whom he had met several times before.
1: But I remember turning around to my father and saying, do you know something strange about Malcolm? And he said, no. Now, I mean, Malcolm is a strange person anyway, but he said, in mean, what way? What, what, I said, there are two things. You're sitting in the Hogan stand watching a hurling match, so the sun is pointing towards the Cusick stand. And I said, you know, it's hard enough to follow the, the flight of a Schlitter but when you're wearing sunglasses, in the Hogan stand. And he looks at me, okay. And I said, but he also wasn't comfortable. I said he was looking around the whole time. He was just looking around, he looked on edge. And I said, did you notice his clothes? He had grass stains on his gray trousers. And his white shirt was dirty. That's just odd, isn't it? And we didn't think anything of it. But yet it was odd.
2: (laughs) Kilkenny two goals and 20 points. Galway, two goals and 10. For Stephen Connolly, Malcolm MacArthur was generally an odd person anyway.
1: He was very well spoken, um, very knowledgeable. So sometimes with, with those type of people, they don't pay a huge amount of attention to what they wear. At the same time, how can a person not at least have clean clothes on them? I noticed at the time, but did I put two and two together? Sure, of course I didn't impossible, Um, but it did strike me as being strange at the time. But but with the benefit of hindsight, clearly money was an issue.
2: As an 18-year-old, he found conversations with Malcolm MacArthur hard work.
1: He was very aloof and very withdrawn, yeah. Um, He's not someone that you go and have a, a friendly chat with, no.
2: It was an incredible situation. The state's most wanted man was a guest in the home of the state's top law officer and was travelling around in a state car driven by a gorda The relative calm for Malcolm MacArthur was to be short-lived. By the middle of that week, Gordy, involved in the murder investigation now knew his name, knew that he and Brenda Little had lived in a flat owned by Paddy Connolly in Donnybrook. They also knew that after his aborted robbery of Harry Bealing, he had flagged down a van and asked to be left in Pilot View, which happened to be where Paddy Connolly lived. On Thursday, the 12th of August, the Murder Squad Sergeant Tony Hickey and a colleague, Dennis Donegan, did house-to-house inquiries in Pilot View.
3: In that complex, you had a gated community, but I think the people that were in it were retired professional people. People that had probably reared families and that went in there now for the sea view and the, the, the surroundings and the, the security of the gated community. When we did house-to-house inquiries there, I think people thought we were a bit out of our depth completely in making inquiries about any kind of a criminal. We were talking about someone that had done an aggravated burglary because that's all we knew at this stage. They thought like, God, you're in the wrong department completely. <laughs> Things like that don't happen out here.
2: On Friday, the 13th of August, Malcolm MacArthur travelled with Patrick Connolly into the city centre. He got a taxi back to Pilot View later that morning. Meanwhile, the Gorthy were keeping Pilot View under surveillance. In another strange incident, they came across something that seemed important, but was not. It was a little grey mini-minor car parked just outside Pilot View.
3: And it took a while to trace that and to eliminate it. But the the door was open and and looking in, lo and behold, there's a little black pistol on the the driver's seat. Again, you'd say, well, this is starting to add up because of the little pistol in the Phoenix Park or what appeared to be a pistol.
2: It turned out to be nothing.
3: And uh, this car was another red herring. It was a few local young lads who had been in college and had done some work. And uh, they went abroad on a holiday and bought an air pistol
2: the car was eliminated from their inquiries. But just as detectives Hickey and Donegan got back into their little Renault 4 van and drove into Pilot View, they spotted something else.
3: The curtains were drawn back in the penthouse apartment, which we knew was belonged to the Attorney General. And here is the guy with the wavy hair, the nice tan and the nicely dressed. And from the descriptions we had, their resemblances were uncanny. We tried the doorbell and there was no answer. Lo and behold a taxi pulled into the complex and we approached him and again there are bells ringing because he had got a call as he had I think the previous day from somebody ringing and saying will you please go to a hardware get two uh, hacksaw blades and go to some other place and buy some type of um, perrier water or some kind of uh, spring water which, there weren't many people buying water, I think, at that stage in Ireland, <laughs> and, uh, again, alarm bells.
2: It escalated very quickly after that. A team of detectives had arrived at this stage. They were led by Detective Superintendent John Courtney of the Murder Squad. The
3: place was surrounded, they covered the back, and we knew what we knew, but we didn't still know where we're going except that we have a very good suspect for an aggravated burglary who may or may not be connected with the
2: other ones. It was now late afternoon on Friday the 13th of August. Unexpectedly, the Attorney General Patrick Connolly arrived home in his state car. Hickey outlines how the drama unfolded.
3: The Attorney General was uh, appraised of what was going on. He had a spring in his step. He was going on holidays to the States and he was off for a few weeks. He was a dapper man with a pinstripe suit. And immediately he was cooperative. He said, what can I do? And he went and he tried the intercom and he rang from a downstairs apartment. There was no answer to either. And then he said, you can have the keys. As it happened, he handed me the keys and he came up the stairs with us, just behind us. And he didn't answer the door. There was a bell, and the turnipul shouted, "Malcolm," he said. "The police are here. The guardies are here. I don't know what you've done," he said. "But you're on your own." But he I demanded that he opened the door, which he did, and he didn't put up any resistance. And one of the first questions we asked him is there anything here that shouldn't be here? And thousands of searchers asked that immediate question. I usually got a negative answer. But in this case, he showed us where the gun was in the in cupboard in a little alcove. It was a Maruka, and we knew the number of it, and it was Donald Dunn's gun.
2: It was Friday the 13th of August, 22 days after Malcolm MacArthur mounted a fatal attack on Bridie Gargan, 20 days after he shot Donald Dunn That moment brought to an end one of the biggest manhunts in Irish policing history. Now, the perpetrator, Malcolm MacArthur, was caught. It in itself was a huge development. But the fact that the murderer was caught in the apartment of the Attorney General elevated it to the level of sensation. August is usually a very quiet month in the media because people are on holidays. Peter Murta, then security correspondent of the Irish Times, recalls the events of that night. Bowes, by the way, is a pub across the road from the old newsroom of the Irish Times on Delira Street.
0: So, Friday night in the, in the newsroom, it's the end of the week, things are winding down a bit. I think lots of my colleagues were over in Bowes. I may have been over in Bowes myself, but word came through that something was going down in Dawkey, that there was a big guard operation kind of the assumption would have been made it it's it must be related to all of these mergers. Maybe they've got a breakthrough, maybe they've got a suspect, whatever. Pretty soon one became aware that it was around this flat complex over Bullock Harbour. Then there was word that isn't that where the Attorney General lives kind of thing. And you thought, you know, holy cow, you know, what is going on here? So that was the Friday night and into the early hours of Saturday morning, was running around trying to put the pieces together. Was all of this connected to one of the murders that the guards were doing their damnedest to try and make progress on? Was it anything to do with the Attorney General? You know, then as, as, as now, I mean, newspapers, good, serious newspapers are very, very careful about making assumptions in the heat of the moment. But it certainly uh, became apparent, I think, at some stage on the Saturday and, and, and through the weekend, what had happened.
2: Stephen Connolly was at home in Carlow with his parents that night. His dad, Tony, knew that Paddy was going on holidays the next day and rang up his brother, whom he nicknamed Lord Dorky.
1: And he said, oh, i better go wish Lord Dawkey a pleasant holiday. So he went off, made the phone call and he came back in. And he sat down and said, said, um, something very strange happening. Apparently, there are a load of guards there and they're arresting Malcolm MacArthur. And I said, for what? And he said, something got to do with shoplifting or, or in a burglary or something. I said, that just doesn't sound right. I was 18 at the time, but I said, I think you need to go ring him back. So he did and he came back in, sat down, absolute white. And he said, it's, it's a lot more serious. And he said, he's been arrested for, uh, for murder. I said, John, you need to get up there straight away. My father was the common-sense person. He was a practical person. Had he, in terms of stuff like this, be naive?
2: It goes without saying that Patrick Connolly was deeply shocked by what had occurred that night. This is his recollection from a decade later in the
0: 1990s. Absolutely stunned. Stop. The most shattering day of my life. Uh, Unbelievable news.
2: When Tony Connolly arrived at his brother's apartment there was a ferocious argument between him and the senior Gordy. It revolved around their decision not to inform Paddy Connolly much earlier about the extraordinary developments. Tony Connolly was beside himself with anger. That Gorthy became aware that a double killer was staying with his brother and did not let him know. From the Gorthy's perspective, it was not as clear-cut as that. And the circumstances had all come together only very shortly before they moved in on the apartment.
3: The ironic thing is that Charlie Hawhey had Sean Dorothy, Minister for Justice, and he was an ex-guard. And he was on holidays in France, I think. The question then afterwards, why didn't they tell the Attorney General before, on his office before he came home, that we're after a fellow in your, in your apartment, like, why didn't they tell the Taoiseach, why didn't they tell the Minister, why didn't they tell the Department of Justice... Dan Murphy, who was detective chief superintendent in charge of the murder squad at that time, told Hawhey, if we had information that evening, we wouldn't tell anybody because if we happened to tell someone in politics and we got there and he was gone, nobody would believe that he wasn't tipped off, you know. Because significantly, MacArthur had been following the television and the newspapers, and he did say that night, had I known you were coming to Pilot View, I'd have been long gone.
2: Nevertheless, that led to incredible tensions between the Gordy and the Connollys over the next 24 hours. Stephen Connolly recalls the concerns that it raised.
1: The other, I suppose, shocking element was here we have the chief legal officer of the country. How long did the, the police know that a potential murder was residing in the apartment of the Attorney General? Where was their regard for the personal safety? of the Attorney General. Regardless of his relationship with MacArthur, I mean, I look back on it and I ask myself the question, and I've asked Paddy and asked my father, what do you think would have happened if you had found the gun? Do you think he would have used it? And they both said, I don't think so. But they know MacArthur, or at least they know a part of MacArthur. Do they know the part of MacArthur that went off and did the actions that he did? Were they the norm? Were they outside the norm?
2: Malcolm MacArthur was now in Gorda custody. Tony Hickey was one of the first murder squad detectives to interview him in Dunleary, Gorda station, that night.
3: He was quite condescending. You know, how dare you ask me questions about uh, like that? He wasn't the ordinary type of guy you'd be interviewing. He carried on a certain uh, conversation about his background and his family and all that type of thing, which is routine. You try and build up a rapport with uh, somebody... At one stage he seemed to be on the verge of telling us something and what we were trying to do was bring him back
2: to the to the, the 22nd of July, initially in the Phoenix Park. That was a savage attack on Brady Gorgon. When they started probing him about these events, Hickey says his demeanour changed. We
3: reminded him of all that and then he kind of stopped talking and he, he kind of got very pale and his eyes kind of, focused or lost their focus and we asked for a glass of water which he got and uh, that was it somebody else took over then and um, later that night he, he asked to see the two of us uh, Conrad and I and he said uh, I want to get my thoughts, he said, in categorical order and I will tell you everything that happened in the morning. As it happened he made a statement in the morning saying I affirm that I'm responsible for the deaths of Grady Gargan and the farmer Donald Dunn and then he made a full and frank statement of admission, which was corroborated in about 40 different ways. The prints turned out to be his. They weren't on record. And he threw uh, some of his equipment into the sea at it It was recovered by the Sabacwa unit.
2: The confession he made ran to 21 pages. He told the Gordy, and I quote... The reason why I bought all this goes back to the money. For the past two years, my finances have been diminishing. This was something that I could not cope with. I wanted this hammer to injure somebody, to get a car, to travel down the country, to get a gun because I had no transport. In turn, I had planned ahead to stick somebody up and the object was to get money. I had been reading in the newspapers about all the robberies and this seemed to weigh out of my obsessive financial situation. Part of the plan also involved a shovel because my attitude was that I wanted this venture to succeed and if by chance I did kill somebody in the venture, I would use the shovel to dispose of the body. At this stage, reporters knew that MacArthur had been arrested in Paddy Connolly's flat, but had been told nothing else. But once it did emerge that he had been arrested in the apartment of the Attorney General, I mean, that is a sensational it was story. Absolutely sensational.
0: I mean, it was probably one of the most sensational stories that I can think of. Certainly in my career, and at, and at any stage in, in in the last like fifty years. I mean, absolutely extraordinary.
2: Can you remember what you specifically did that weekend, just in terms of tracking the story down?
0: I would have been talking to uh, any Garda contacts I had. I would have contacted any any anybody in politics that I knew to try and find out what was going wrong. But to be honest, I don't think I had many answers uh, at all.
2: EU ombudsman Emily O'Reilly, then starting out in journalism, conveys her astonishment on hearing the news.
0: At that time, I was actually working in Woman's Way magazine, editing the reader's letters and short stories and all of that. So I was following everything. And I remember being at the, the 15B bus stop on my way home in Delir Street and getting a copy of the Evening Herald. And, and it was just starkly there, you know, Malcolm MacArthur found in A.G.'s flat. And it was just shocking.
1: Um, I mean, he described in his diaries as being the most shattering day of his life. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. But even to this day, it doesn't make sense.
3: The political aspect took over then, and uh, it took on a life of its own. Connolly were victims of weird, grotesque, unusual, bizarre, the
2: goo-boo. Connolly described the night of Friday the 13th of August as the most shattering of his life. Little did he know it, his troubles were only beginning and that all hell was about to break loose. Next time on Gubu, The media frenzy caused by the arrest of the double killer Malcolm MacArthur and how it led to the most sensational political scandal in the history of the Irish state. Gubu is an Irish Times audio production. It was written, produced and presented by myself, Harry McGee. The editor of Gubu was Enda O'Dowd. The executive editor and senior producer of audio at the Irish Times is Declan Conlon. Sound mix was by JJ Vernon. Graphics was by Paul Scott. The title music was by Oracle. We thank the RTE archives, Reuters, the Jimmy Carter Library, the Ronald Reagan Library, and the Oireachtas TV Archive. For further comprehensive coverage of the Gubu scandal, including articles, notes, photographs and maps, visit irishtimes.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support future long-term projects, please consider subscribing at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe.
0: Planning for your next trip?